Well, good morning, one and all. We're glad to see each one of you here. Uh, Joe, uh, we're getting some more notes printed so that you'll get a copy of them. If anybody wants more copies, including you folks, anybody who's listening in, we greet you. Good morning, too. On our church website, if you go to View Documents, and you'll see my name, Don Hewitt, and if you go in there, you'll find the notes for today in there. So if you want extra copies, and the title of it is called Identifying the Sons of God in Genesis 6, 2, and 4. And so that's, that, that's going to be our subject for today. And so uh, if you want more copies, please feel free to get them. And uh, we'll greet you this morning, too. Good to see all of you here. Glad everybody here has made it on time. Love this building. I like all the facilities. So we're going to open this morning with just a word of prayer. And then we're going to jump into our subject. And we're actually getting started. I know, Pastor, is it, is it legal for us to start a minute or two early? Or are we... <laughs> We may, we may be breaking some sacred rule. I'm sure we're breaking one somewhere. There has to be a rule somewhere. But let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer, shall we? Father, we're thankful today that we have the great privilege of looking into your word. And as we approach the Bible, Father, we're not dealing with a book that's flawed and full of errors. We're not dealing with a book that's based upon the opinions of men. We're, we're reading a book... This is the truth as you see it. It is your point of view, Father, on your dealings with humanity. And it tells us everything that we need to know. And indeed, in some cases, more than we, would, uh, more than we need to know. But even sometimes as much as we might want to know. But there's always the privilege, Father, of coming here and finding what we have yet to learn. And today, Father, we realize that the most effective way to learn is for the Spirit of God to direct the individual mind of the believer and to put the pieces together so that they can see that what the speaker's teaching is, is accurate, is true. And Father, we only wish to be today true to your word. We know Pastor feels the same way. And so, Father, we, we pray for blessing in his service that follows this morning as he speaks. But Father, now as we come to your word, may we realize that there's so much here that we have not, we have not paid attention to maybe as believers and we have not seen and that the world might not like and might try to be a little less for believing. But if your word says something is true, Father, that settles it. We need to go no further than that. So bless in this study now we ask in our Savior's wonderful name. Amen. Now we're dealing with a study today that's fun. This is one of the areas, any time I've ever had the opportunity to teach on this, it's always been more, it's been more fun for me probably than it has been for the students because I, I really enjoy doing this. Uh, it's, interestingly enough, when I was, was pastor, in the five years I pastored the church, this was the most popular subject by far. This was the one everybody was interested in because it seems to be just bigger than life. It seems somehow this just can't possibly be true. But if scripture says something is true, then that means it's true. That settles it for me. What is our subject then? Ah, it's identifying, you'll notice, our series has been called Problems We Don't Have When We Take Scripture Literally. And one of the problems we won't have is back in the book of Genesis is identifying who these ones called the sons of God were. Now, I suppose we should read this morning before I get started in my introduction. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 6, and we'll be dealing with that. And this is just the most fascinating part of the scripture that in, in the book of Genesis. And one of the most interesting but misunderstood passages that will... Oh, this, if we understand what's going on here correctly, we'll see the hand of Satan. We'll see some of what Satan was up to doing. And we'll understand just how evil this one is. So in Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, 
that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, and the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. Literally, men of the name. It's kind of an interesting expression. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. Now, when you look at this, before we even get started, you can see that God was, God was repented, or God was sorry, speaking, putting in terms we can understand, that he'd made man. And the reason he was sorry is because of the evil in verse 5, which really reflects the fact that mankind became involved with the sons of God and the daughters of men. That's, where, that's what caused the anger. So when you understand this passage, you will see that the flood came because of the wickedness of the human race. But that wickedness was that they were willing to, to mate, to cohabitate with these giants, with these sons of God. And when we see who they are, it makes sense. And it also points into, and we'll have to deal with this at a future date, it also deals with what Satan was trying to do at this point. So Satan has been at work, and when you go back in the early chapters of Genesis, though you don't see his name specified at chapters 1 through 11, you see so much of what he's done. He's not credited for it, but when we look at the New Testament and read back, we can see this is Satan at work to do certain things to thwart the program of God. Just remember about Satan. He has no positive programs to offer. His whole mode of operation is to destroy, to to ruin, to mar, to oppose, to get revenge upon God because God put him out of the program. So, having read this passage, now let's look at our introduction. And uh, let's see, uh, there's two, Joe and, and uh, our friend up here, don't, Rick, Rick. I, I can't, I'm sorry, I keep forgetting your name. I want to call you, I want to call you Joe also, you know. But so we have some notes and uh, for the class today. And uh, I hope that they'll be helpful. Now, one of the most controversial subjects in Genesis is the identity of the sons of God and the daughters of men. It's, and up until the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas was the first that we know of to propose that the sons of God were the the line of Seth, the children of Seth, and that they were godly or saved people. And the daughters of men were those that were ungodly, unsaved. And so the problem that is that the problem that this view that is a common view today that the sons of God were the line of Seth it was a problem of believers intermarrying with unbelievers, but we're going to see that that just does not that just does not match what Scripture says at all. And there's a problem if we take Scripture literally, we'll see this isn't true. But nonetheless, the majority opinion was that the sons of God were something different until the 13th century. Thomas Aquinas, who if you're familiar with Thomas Aquinas. He was an interesting philosopher. He was voluminous in his writings, in his thinking. He was a very intelligent man, but he was hardly what we'd call a believer. He didn't take the Bible literally, and when he didn't like things, he was trying to philosophize to make the Bible fit man's thinking. Now, unfortunately, the way we should be doing things is not that way. We should be trying to make our thinking fit what the Bible says, not make the Bible fit what we want it to say or what we think it means. So, because of this, 
there was a change in how people looked because you'll notice in the 20th century there was a change in the opinion. The majority opinion was that the sons of God were something else. They were spirit beings. We're going to look at that in a moment. But what brought the change about after Aquinas in the last, in the 20th century, you'll notice I have a quote in, in our notes. In the 20th century, the German biblical scholar Rudolf Bultmann gave a, a massive critique of the scriptures arguing that the Bible was filled with mythological references, mythological references, get that, that must be removed if it's to have any significant application to our day. Bultmann's major concern was with the New Testament narratives, miracles, turning water to wine, walking on water, particularly those that, in, and particularly those that included the, the records of miracles which he deemed impossible. Now you'll notice his starting point. He's going to, this whole idea this man has comes from his point of view. He thinks it's impossible. So because he thinks it's impossible, he's going to read that back into the Bible. Rather than let the Bible speak for itself, Wolfman wanted to read his thoughts back. And so, other scholars have claimed that there were mythological elements in the Old Testament as well. And may I say this, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, if you read many, many, many so-called Christian scholars, and you've got to make, be careful when you say the name Christian, because a lot of them say they're Christian and they're not. Many Christian so-called scholars will say that Genesis chapters 1 through 11 is all just mythology. It's just mythological to tell you something. Well, my question would be simply this. Then why did God write it? If it's just mythology, why did he have to write it down? It's just myths. If it's not really real, why, why should it be in a book that purports itself to be the truth? Why would you put something in there that isn't true? And right at the beginning. Good, good point. Thank you for that. That's a good point. Right at the beginning. Now, well, I don't think these people could imagine this stuff, um, make it up. Well, you know, that, that would be my question, too, is, is where, who would have an imagination to come up? I mean, there are things in the Old Testament, the Tower of Babel and, and the things that happened there. There's no way that most of us would ever have been able to think that up on our own, just dream this up. So, and so the 20th century, so what was, the, what was the massive change that happened? There was a change. You'll notice the, second para the third paragraph down. This, this is a reaction. This change, I should have put that in there. In the third paragraph, it says, this is a reaction. This change is a reaction of, biblical, of Bible scholars and teachers and theologians who should have known better than to surrender their beliefs because they want to be accepted by the unsaved academia. What happened was this viewpoint that the sons of God were the, were the line of Seth and the daughters of men were just other unsaved human beings and the, the idea that it was just the godly and the ungodly intermarrying, that was, that was adopted and people gave up the other view because they wanted to be accepted by academia. Now, the funniest thing in the world to me, and, and, I, and this is something I don't understand. Pastor and I have talked about this before. Pastor, I don't understand why someone would be willing to kowtow to people that are unbelievers to gain their acceptance so that they'll think that you're a scholar. Okay, let me say it to you folks. I am not a scholar. Does that settle it? I'm not worried about what they think. I'm not a scholar. I'm a Bible teacher. That's what I am. I'm not a scholar. Well, I, I, I say really I am a scholar. But for their sake, I'm not a scholar. I'm not worried about what they think. Now, as I've said before, if we as believers want to gain favor with the academia, with the unsaved minds in this world, there's one simple way that we can do it. Just give up the gospel. Just stop saying that 1 Corinthians 15 is true. Just stop saying that Christ died for your sins on the cross and he was buried and he rose again. That resurrection is one thing. We've looked at that before. That was the one thing that, te that teed off the, Roma the Jews in the Roman world that there was somebody that rose from the dead. 
Now all we have to do is give that up and then we'll start to appeal to the unsaved academia. But friends, I'm not willing to go there. I'm not willing, I don't think any of you are willing to go there either, but that's what we'd have to do. But you see there, historically, this has happened over and over. It happened with evolution. Do you realize that in 1860, when, when the theory of evolution was proposed, that there were many Christian scholars, so-called, that gave up what they believed and went to what they called theistic evolution because they didn't want the scholars to look down and say, hey, look at that stupid fool down there. They didn't want to be belittled. They wanted to be accepted. Like I said, I'm not worried about being accepted. Pastor, I won't call myself a scholar. Well, that'll solve the problem. They don't have to think anything of me. I'm not worried about that. Why should we be worried about what unsaved people think about God? All you have to do is look at Romans 5.10 and you find out that the world hates God. They hate God. So why should, I mean, if they hate our Father, why should we want to kowtow to them in the first place? Well, so, as we've said, now the, the gospel is always going to be, you'll notice I put it in here, the gospel, at the bottom of our introduction, the gospel will always be the dividing line between the men of God and the unbelieving academia. As long as we believe that, no matter what else we do, academia is not going to accept us. And my question still is, why should we be concerned about what unsaved people think about us? What, what does it matter? They're not going to answer to us one day. The great white throne in Revelation 20, if you look at Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, there's going to be the Son of God seated on that throne, and mankind is going to answer to Him. We're not, I don't think we're going to be there. Now, if we are there, we're not going to be the one that's doing any speaking. We may be there visiting or seeing at a distance, but we're not going to be the ones that do the speaking. We're not going to be the ones that pronounce the sentence. They're going to answer to God. So, so why am I concerned about it? What does it matter what they think about me in the first place? I'm not even concerned, and I hope you're not concerned about it either, because if you believe what I'm about to say, the scripture shows you, academia would look down at you and say, oh, you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. They would. They would think ill of us, and they do. So the point of our study now today is we're not here to criticize anybody. I know I sound like I'm coming down on academia. I'm really not. There's some very intelligent people out there. There's some very wonderful people in some areas of science that I, I like reading. I like keeping up with astronomy. Except lately I've noticed that all they're doing is they're saying conjectural. It's conjectural astronomy. They're saying, well, it seems that this could be, and it seems that that could be, and they're so obsessed with finding life outside of the planet Earth. You know the problem with that? They can't explain how life got on Earth here. They can't explain. Now, what good is it going to do if they find it two other places out there? It'll just be more places where they can't explain anything. For heaven's sake, what's with those people? <laughs> they're just, I mean... They're just wackadoodles, is, is, is the old term I've heard. So the point of our study is not really to criticize these people because there's a lot of them I respect. But our point is simply to answer a question. Who were the sons of God in Genesis 6, 2, and 4? That's a simple question, isn't it? So let's begin with what the Old Testament does. So we're going to begin with the Old Testament use of the sons of God. And first off, we're going to ask the simple, answer the simple question, who are those that are not called the sons of God? Well, You'll notice point number one. We cannot call anyone a son of God in the Old Testament unless the Old Testament calls someone or anyone a son of God. Does that seem fair enough, folks? If the Scripture calls someone the son of God, then they're a son of God. If it doesn't say they're a son of God, do you or I have the right to read that in? I am not going to put words in God's mouth. You know, I, I get enough trouble with my own mouth. And if I put them in other people's mouths, I'm going to be doubly troubled. And I, I'm just not going to do that. So... If, if the, to, to read, you notice I put it in here, to read the Son of God in any passage is what we call eisegesis, and it's the starting point for heresy and error. 
But we allow people to start reading stuff into the Bible, they're going to, it's starting to change what the text of Scripture says. And if we allow people to start to change the text of Scripture, guess what? We're headed right down the road to error heresy. And that's where all heresies come from, for the most part. There are a lot of cults that use the Bible, but they have to read certain things into the Bible, like the pearl of great price. And then all of a sudden, there's a whole church group that used that to, as a link right into their pagan religion. So it's, it's easily done. So, we believe that the Bible is God-breathed. And the, and the reason, you'll notice, the reason that I'm making such a big deal about this is that we cannot read anything into the Bible because we believe the Bible is God-breathed. Now, to say something is God-breathed, it is as though God breathed it out on paper. Just as though he breathed the words out on paper. They're exactly what he wanted to say. And to change anything is to say that God didn't really say what he said or mean what he meant or, or anything of that sort. Frankly, you'll notice in italics I have down towards the bottom of page one, I am not willing to go there. I'm not, I'm not a fool. I'm not going to go there and say, well, God didn't really mean what he said here. Oh, really? Pastor, have you ever tried to do that, try to put words in God's mouth? You know, No. He would never do that. None of us would do that. But if we don't take the scriptures literally, if we say, well, they really mean something else, we, in effect, are really saying, no, God didn't really mean what he said he meant this. Oh, I'm so smart. I know what God meant and no one else does. Well, why is it when people do that, by the way? If you've ever read people where they allegorize any scriptures and you've ever seen it in print, they'll always disagree. But if we take things literally, we won't disagree. We'll all be in unity. So why don't we just take what scripture says simply as what it is? So... The Old Testament believer does not call any Old Testament does not call any believer a son of God. Now, there's plenty of plenty of saved people in the Old Testament. There are men like Job, Daniel, and Noah. Those three individuals were were in twice in the book of, uh, of the 14th chapter of Ezekiel. These three men, Job, Daniel, and Noah, were were set aside as being what appears to be the most righteous men in the Old Testament. But you know, none of them are called sons of God in the Old Testament. If anybody should have been called a son of God, I would say Job. Well, particularly Noah. Boy, Noah, Noah had quite a job to stand out against the whole world of his time. He's, he's building this ark, and all these people are coming around. I'm sure they say, hey, what are you doing? What, are you, what is this thing you're building? Well, it's to flow on water. Oh, there's no water here, you idiot. I'm sure, he, I'm sure he died a lot of... I'm sure for the 120... We saw in the text it said back in Genesis 6, did you notice it said... When, when you look here, and this is not just in saying something about the age of man. If you look at back at Genesis 6 quickly for a moment, we should make this point, and I want you to see it. It's important to note this, because this tells you something about the times. There's a lot of time indicators that we can easily overlook. But it says that uh, in verse 3, The Lord said, my, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for he's also flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, there are some who have said, oh, that's how long mankind is going to live. No. If you follow the context through, he's going to get a hold of Noah, who is a man that's not contaminated with his sons of God. He's got a pure human bloodline, and he's going to have him build an ark so he can destroy everything on earth. So what does 120 years refer to? This was a commission that was 120 years before the flood. God began to deal with Noah. Noah had 120 years to build the, build the ark. So if you've ever wondered how long it took, it took him 120 years. Now, I've seen some backyard projects, but I'll tell you what, <laughs> I've, I've never had one that lasted that long. I have. I've been working on it. <laughs> I don't know, bro. 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting, and, and this is an aside. There are there there's a, a number on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff on YouTube that are that are documentary things that are just off the wall. But there's one that I watched one time that they purported to have found the, the, the Noah's Ark. And there's evidence to suggest that they showed pictures of it, aerial pictures, and there was something that was the right, it was the right dimensions. But one of the things that they found that was interesting in it was, you know what? They didn't have wood pegs in there. They had iron nails holding it together, big iron spikes. And I thought, well, if that's really true, I guess maybe that if you go back before the flood, they weren't exactly knuckle-scraping Neanderthals. Because a lot of times the modern modern science looks back, so those people back there, they're primitive. They're all a bunch of knuckle-scraping Neanderthals. They didn't know what they were doing. They went out in one cloth and grunted. No, they were pretty smart back there. If they had wooden, if they didn't use wooden spike, wooden pegs, if they used actual spikes or, or iron nails, they're pretty sophisticated people. So anyway, we had 120 years back there before the flood came. Now, so... To put it another way, bottom of page one, just because someone is not called a son of God, the, the Old Testament, that doesn't make them any less saved, does it? It doesn't take anything away from an Old Testament believer for not being called son of God. The fact is, if you're saved, you're saved. No matter what you want to call somebody saved. And, if you, and because that is not given to those people, do we have reason to say, well, they're somehow they were less saved? Well, the, the content of their salvation, the promises they had, were definitely different and less. But it, they were not less because they weren't called the sons of God. Now, I know in the New Testament we're called that. But please, don't be guilty of reading what we have back in the Old Testament until you can show me a verse that calls humans the sons of God. The only time it's used is Adam is called the son of God because, yeah, he was directly created by God. He had certain privileges, but his children were not called that. Just him. So don't read, don't read Son of God today back into it because we are called sons of God. Yes, we are. By position, we have that. We have position, we have privilege. That's what the sonship implies. But you don't see that in the Old Testament because they did not have the position and privilege that we have. And it wouldn't be reasonable to call them sons. Now, point number three, you'll notice on the top of the page, here's an important key. This view today that the, the sons of Seth were the godly line has a major, 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 major problem. Because there is nothing identified in the Old Testament as the sons of Seth. There's nothing identified with them being godly. Now, that's important because the majority of Bible teachers hold the position that the sons of God were the godly line of Seth. Now, you'll notice here, I, we don't have to read them, but I put them in, in your, here in your notes for your, for your convenience. The only references to Seth in the Bible, in the Old Testament of the Bible, are written right there, are recorded out of the King James, and are put right in your notes, you can see them. Now, if you look through these, tell me if you see the, the sons of Seth being named. Because if they're, if, if they're going to be, if the sons of Seth were the godly line, and they, if the sons of Seth were the sons of God, there should be some indication of there should be something said. But look at these verses we have here. Well, you see that, you see that Adam knew his wife, and he had another son called Seth that was there to replace uh, the lost son. Now, you notice in the first reference in verse 26, it said to Seth, there, were, there was also born a son. He called his name Enos. And then men began to, call, began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's the closest you can have to anything about God with this man, Seth. In his time, it says men began to call on the, on the name of God. They began to look to God for help in prayer. But that doesn't say that Seth did it, does it? You notice what it says? Read it carefully. It says, then began men to call on the name of the Lord. Does that include Seth? Probably does. You'd think, so. You'd think so. 
But do you see anything about the sons of Seth? Do you see a godly line coming there? If Just because this man was saved, does it mean his children were saved? You know, one of the saddest things that I know of is I, I've had some really good friends that were believers, and they've been teachers and Bible teachers and pastors. And you know what? Their children are not all saved. Their children are not all saved. Just because you and I are saved, there is no guarantee that our children will be saved. And that's another problem that I didn't put in your notes, but it's there for the line of for Seth as being the sons of Seth being God, being the sons of God, and all being godly saved people. That's never happened before. There's never been a place in Scripture where you can find that because one man was saved, all of his children were automatically saved. People get saved individually today and back then. They get saved. I know people like to go to, to, to Acts 16.31, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. But that's what we call an elliptical statement. It's cut short. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. If they believe in the Lord, they shall be saved. There's no guarantee that because I'm a believer or you're a believer that my children, my grandchildren, or my great-grandchildren, or my great-great-grandchildren, they're ever going to be saved. There's no guarantee on it. So to say that Seth, because he was saved, his, his progeny was saved, that's just preposterous. You can't prove it. And there's nothing here that would say it. And the first, that first passage we saw, Genesis 4.26, is the closest that you can connect Enoch, or Seth with God and being righteous and, and having a relationship to God. But it doesn't say, anything, it doesn't say his family did. It doesn't say anything about his children. And if you look at the other names down, yes, go ahead. Question. There's the line of Seth, the genealogy that takes you down to Noah, they were all believers, but that didn't include all of the people from no, I didn't. No, not all the sons. Yeah, not all the sons of Seth were saved people. Absolutely, they weren't. And so, how can you? But you see, what's happened here? Why would they do this? We'll stop right here again. And ask the question. Well, why would people not pay attention to this? I mean, you would think if you read the English, this is English Bible. I don't even. I love the Hebrew text, but I don't even have to bring up the Hebrew text. This is all English. You can see just by going to the English. Anybody with a fair, open mind can see. No, there are no sons of Seth identified. Therefore, you can't say the sons of God are the sons of Seth. Not if you're taking the Bible literally. That's a problem we don't have. We're not going to be confused. You just can't do it, folks. And the reason I say this is because this is the majority position today, And whereas once it was not a majority position, once it was just something that Thomas Aquinas, who was a Catholic philosopher, came up with, and it didn't gain a lot of traction among Bible believers because, frankly, the things that come out of the Roman Catholic Church, I don't pay a whole lot of attention to. I don't, Pastor, do you ever read any of their writings to see what they're doing? Well, because we know that they're not on our side of the issue in most things. So nobody paid attention to Thomas Aquinas. It wasn't until Boltman started saying this and people began to think, oh, we don't want to be thought of as ignoramuses. And that was not long after they'd already made concessions over evolution. There were a lot of men. There was a gentleman, James Strong, wrote a theology. And it's in print and still to this day. And I have it at home. And he made all kinds of concessions because what he said, what he finally said is what he was really concerned about is that people could believe in Jesus Christ, for his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection for salvation. That's all that mattered to him. He was willing to compromise everything else. Now, I, I don't know about you, but that does not seem like a very sensible, wise, reasonable approach to take. To give up everything else just to please academia. Why? Why do we want why do we want to come back to the same question? Why do I want to please academia? You know? Maybe they'll give me a fifty dollar bill if I agree with them. So what? <laughs> I just spend it on something I didn't need probably.
give me the $50 bill, Pastor, and we'll, we'll go out and buy pizza afterwards. And then my $50 bill will be gone. So, now, here we come down to the second major point. Who, we know who is not called the sons of God. There's no humans called the sons of God in the Old Testament. No believers, no line of Seth, no nothing. But who are they? Well, remember, underneath this, who are called, this is on page two, who are called the sons of God in the Old Testament. Remember, we are not considering the New Testament use of the sons of God. This is, this is the big stumbling block with people that want to have the, the sons of Seth become the sons of God. Because believers in the New Testament are called sons of God, so they want to have sons of God be used of humans in the Old Testament. The problem is it's not used. Because this exact Hebrew wording, and I didn't put it in here, but I have it and, and I've used it before, the exact Hebrew wording is used a total of four times in the Old Testament. Four times. Now, if it's only used four times, then I suggest there is going to be where the definition comes from. It can only come from where it is used. It not, can't come from my imagination. It can't come from my presupposition that because we're called sons of God, they were. It has to be found in the Old Testament. Now, if you look at we have them printed right on our notes, going on to the top of page 3. Okay, we have Genesis 6-2. And it's printed right in your notes, bottom of page 2. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and took them wives of all they chose. Now, it doesn't tell you. From that, you cannot say who the sons of God are, except that we do know it can't be humans. But it doesn't say who they are. But if they can't be humans, you're kind of left, uh, kind of stuck with an obvious conclusion that we're going to see in a second. But they can't be humans. Well, then who are they? Genesis 6-4. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that... These giants were result when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and bare the children unto them. The same became mighty men of old, which were of old, men of renown, men of the name. I, I like that expression. It's men of the name in Hebrew. So this was something when the sons of God came in, it says they produced giants. Now, you know, the word giant, we'll see some of these words later on. If we don't get to it this week, we'll have to do it in the future, next month. You'll have to wait a whole month to hear the rest of it. But if we wait, I will give you more stuff. I, I have a whole bunch more material to share on this subject. This is only what I really want to do today is just show you who the sons of God are. That there's a whole lot about what their offspring did. It's just absolutely fascinating. And it just it's history and it's real fact. And the Bible tells you some things about it that would just make you say, Wow, I didn't know that was there. And you know, I've come to the conclusion that the Bible is not only edifying to my spiritual life, it's downright entertaining and fascinating to read because this is reality. I love reading history, but you know what? I like, I like reading true history. And sometimes when you read history books, depending on who writes it, the good guy is the bad guy in one book and he's the good guy in the other book. Some people, regard when you read about Napoleon, depending on who's writing about it, Napoleon was a brilliant genius and others he was an egotistical, arrogant fool. Well, which one was he? Well, that, that's history, but you don't get a true picture. But when you read the Bible, you are getting the truth. You are seeing what really happened from God's point of view. So, we, so Genesis 6-4, now we know there were giants. And, and we, we're going to see, by the way, just a real quick teaser. One of, the, one of the giants that was left way late was Og, the king of Bashan. And it's, the reference is in here in case we don't get to it this morning. Og, Og of Bashan, he had a bed frame that was found. It was put on display in Rabbah. His bed frame was nine cubits long and four cubits wide. Now, a cubit is 18 inches. So nine cubits is what? 13 feet and six feet wide. Now, if, I've heard of California kings. I've heard of California, but I mean, 
Who, what would you, why would someone have a 13 foot long bed? Probably because they were 12 feet long. And there was another person a little bit later called Goliath of Gath. We, didn't, we don't even have him in here, but he was also one of the late Rephaim. He was a little guy. He was only nine foot six. And he only went around wearing a coat of mail that weighed, that weighed 155 pounds. Now, Brother Scott, you're a big, strong guy. If you had to wear a coat of mail 155 pounds, would it be easy to do? <laughs> and then to go, then, then to go running into battle wearing it? And that's just, that's just his coat of mail. That doesn't talk about his other armor. Goliath had a spear that was about 19 feet long. that had a flaming head on it that he could light on fire. He wasn't a, a nine foot six. I'll bet you he must have weighed 800 pounds or more. I'd look up to him and say, Hi, sir. <laughs> See you around. Have a good day. So the sons of God, they produced giants. So there's something unusual about this situation. These individuals that had a humanoid body but they weren't human. That kind of leads you stuck to seeing what Scripture says. Now when we go to Job 1.6, it says, There was a day when the sons of God, same identical Hebrew words, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And also on top of page, top of page 3. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Now, when you look at this, you'll find that this location where they're appearing is in the third heaven before a place is called, in, in, Gen, in Isaiah 14, it's called the Mount of Congregation. The Mount of Congregation is where the angels congregate before God. Well, wait a minute. If it's angels that congregate before God, and it says the sons of God came in and Satan came among them, then who are the sons of God? Tell me who they are, folks. What does scripture make them? There's only one thing they can be. They're spirit beings. They're angels. They have to be. There's nothing else they can be. There is only one human being that has ever gone before the Mount of Congregation gone to third heaven. That's the risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Up to this point, no one else has gone. So the sons of God, you cannot escape it. If you go, This is a problem you won't have. If you just take the Bible literally, they cannot be anything but spirit beings. Oh, now people say, well, Angels don't marry and give in marriage, according to, according to Luke chapter 23. That's normal. They don't normally do that. That doesn't mean they can't do that. It means they don't normally do that. Because otherwise, how would you explain this? The sons of God are, the, are these spirit beings. They could take flesh. And, you can, and the fact that there were giants born indicate that there was something unusual about these individuals. I mean, just because, you know, just because you take your vitamins doesn't mean when you have your next child that he's going to be 12 foot tall. It just doesn't work that way. You don't have people born like that. These, there, were some, there were giants in the earth. And, and, and uh, by the way, if you do a little research on this, I have a, a, a picture graphic that I used for one Bible study I was involved with, and I went into great detail on this. And it shows the places in America where they have dug up skeletons of individuals that were seven, eight foot tall and more. And it has little purple figurines of humans. It's all up and down the East Coast, all up and down, all over in California. For example, there was a man in California dug up. He was eight foot tall. The trouble is he was cut off at the knees. He was eight foot tall. What was left from his knees up? So if you put his lower leg on there, he's probably 10 foot tall. It was a humanoid skeleton. And I have some documentation at home. This is not in your notes, but I have documentation at home. It says that this was written 100 years ago. There was a letter to an editor of a newspaper in, in, the state of, in the state of New York that said they caught 
they caught some of the men at Smithsonian destroying huge skeletons, huge skulls of men. They were destroying them. Why were they destroying them? Because it doesn't fit evolution. Evolution, man gets bigger and better and bigger and better. If you go way back there and find these, these, these what appear to be normal humans, they're 12, 15 feet tall, that doesn't exactly screw with evolution. So what do our great scientist friends do? They just pick up the, they pick up the academic carpet, they sweep anything underneath it they don't like, and then pretty soon the academic carpet looks like this. <laughs> looks like a mountain range. But that's, so there, the evidence is there. So what I'm saying is not, it's not mysticism or not fantasy. But now see, you can see why somebody like Boltmann would say, well, there's all these myths in the Bible. We have to get rid of these myths for it to be relevant. Why do we have to get rid of the truth for it to be relevant? The truth is the truth. Just because people don't like the truth doesn't change it. I had a friend at one time said, you know, if somebody says that you're, if somebody says that you're a, a donkey once, you, you listen to them. They say you're a donkey twice, you, you consider it. If they say you're a donkey the third time, you go buy a saddle for yourself. Now, I mean, it just, you can't escape the facts of the facts. Now, you'll notice that we, put, that we have on the top of the page also, point number three on the top of page three, and we don't want to miss this, there is one verse that doesn't have a definite article. So the Hebrew text says, sons of God. Now it's identical statement minus one single letter. The Hebrew, interestingly enough, has a single letter that it'll stick on the front of a noun. One single letter, and it's, it's a definite article. So it's one letter different, but it doesn't have the definite article, and it's just sons of God. And this, however, even adds more to our, to our information. In Job 38, 7, it says, when the morning stars sang together and all, now the English puts in sons of thee before because it sounds normal. In English, we want to see thee in there. We don't want to read that uh, the morning stars sang together and all sons of God shouted for joy. We don't, we don't read it that way, so we want to see thee. But so they, King James put thee in, though it's not there. But the important thing to see here is sons of God. It says, the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, I have a headline for most people. There weren't any humans here before the universe was created. If you read this passage of scripture in Job 38, it's talking about the creation of the universe, where Job, where God is asking Job, Job is saying all these things about God. Says, God says, okay, if you're so smart, answer these questions. You know, were you there when this happened? Were you there when that happened? And he says, were you there when the sons of God, when the morning stars sang together, and the sons of God shouted for joy? Now, that means that spirit beings were here before the material universe. If you never knew that, it's right out of Scripture. I'm not going to make it up. There it is. But there's something interesting about this. It says, the morning stars sang together. Now, I don't think I'd call it music, but if you want a really entertaining experience, go on the Internet and type in a search engine, star sounds. Or star, you can start, star music, star sounds. Did you know that the stars, make, they all have different waves, wavelengths and different sounds? And by the way, so do the planets. There's a, I found a site where you can listen to what the, the sounds of the, the radio waves coming out of the planets sound like. And they, they all sound, all, all of them sound different. And the stars have a, have a melodic sound to them. Now, to us, they're not music. But then again, we weren't created to live in the stars. Spirit beings were. Angels were given the stars. In fact, you find it, one of the fascinating things is Revelation 20 where it's talking and Revelation has an angel standing in the sun. Why would an angel be standing in the sun? Because where he lives, apparently. It's his home. But he's standing in the sun? 
You realize that the core of the sun is in the millions of degrees, and the surface is only a, a cool. The surface of the sun is a cool one million degrees, I think, and the corona is like eleven thousand or something. It's just unbelievably hot. So the the fact that these spirit beings, these are spirit beings. So the sons of God are spirit beings, and I think Job thirty-eight seven. If you if Job one six and two one is not convincing enough, put Job thirty-eight seven in there. These have to be spirit beings. They are not humans. There were no humans created. The first man we know from the Bible was created after the earth was set up in six days. The sixth day, man was created. There he is. So how could he be back here shouting for joy? It doesn't make any sense. You have to make the spirit beings. Now, you'll notice, you'll notice some of the things we said we have here. When we talk about Job 1, 6 and 2, 1, we're saying the scene is set in heaven. Angels and Satan report before the throne of God at the Mount of Congregation. Now, in Isaiah 14, 13, the reason I put that in there is because it identifies it, but it also says something about Satan. Satan, in his program, wanted to replace God. He wanted to get even with God, and he wanted to put himself on equal footing with God, and so he wanted to bring his chair up by the Mount of Congregation because he wanted to be next to God and act like the angels should be reporting into him, too. He should be telling people what to do. And you can see, read in Isaiah 14, 13. You know, that's not mystical. When you look at what it really means, Satan had ambitions. He wanted to put his throne right next to God's throne. He wanted to act like he was God, but he wanted to be completely independent from God. He wanted revenge. He wanted revenge, and he was going to get it any way he could. And so he had that ambition. So when you look at that, it's just that's mind-boggling to think that this is what Satan was willing to do. Yeah, it is. That's what he was willing to do. Now, so you'll notice we said no human being except the risen glorified Savior has ever gone there to the Mount of Congregation and the only other beings that come to the Mount of Congregation are the spirit beings so the, you know, all bold font therefore scripture is crystal clear sons of God in the Old Testament refer to spirit beings now we say spirit beings because there's angels, cherubim, seraphim but the sons of God that came to earth without doubt were the lowest they were the angels we believe that they were angels because there aren't yes Yes, that's who they were. Yeah, because if they came with Satan... Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that point out. Thank you, Rick. Rick brings out a good point. I should have said that. They're fallen angels that did this. Because they wouldn't have been good angels doing this. And those angels today are confined in Tartarus. There's a place that they're, they're, they're held in Tartarus. The angels were involved in this. So they, there's no question who they were. There's definitely spirit beings. But now there's something else before we get into anything, and we're probably going to have to finish this next week, but I want to at least get down to the main point, too, because what are the, the main point that this will have to come out next month. What are the offspring of the sons of God like, and where were they found? That's where it really starts getting into some fascinating information, and, I, and I'll share a whole bunch more with you next, next time. Uh, I have a, quite a bit of information available, and I, I will probably pick... pick uh, what, I was not going to say laundered, but I will probably simplify it because I put a lot of Hebrew. I've got stuff that I have for seminary. It has all kinds of Hebrew in it, and I don't think you folks really want to read Hebrew text. Did anybody here read Hebrew, by the way? I didn't think so. I don't even read it that well myself. It's, it's, it takes, takes effort. So, now in Genesis 6-4, you'll notice, and this is point, point C on page 3. We're right there. It says, how many times the, the, sons of, the offspring of the sons of God occurred? So the sons of God... We always have the image, and I know I did for years, that they only were there once on the earth. But look what it says. It says, we, we, we pulled a phrase out of Genesis 6, 4, and we emphasized it when we read it. It says, there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that. So, the giants, the first run of giants, were taken out in the flood. 
but also after that they came back. Now, how do we know that's true? Well, everything we have about the, about their offspring, and we're going to see the names of their offspring, is all things that all recorded after the flood. We don't even know where they were during before the flood, except that they were everywhere. And and by the way. How pervasive were these sons of God, these mutants? I call them down here, uh, down here, you see, I called them hybrid humanoids under point A, under, under main point two. I called them hybrid humanoids. And the reason I called them that is because they look like men, but God doesn't count them to be men. Now, this is something, but I'm going I'm to go ahead and spring this on you because this is, this is too good to keep back. Look over Gen- Isaiah 26, verse 14. These individuals are known by several names, and I'm going to show you. There's one name, Nephilim, and the main name in the Old Testament is going to be Rephaim, and out of Hebrew. Isaiah 26, verse 14. Now, their offspring, one of the names of their offspring is going to be Nephilim, and that main name is Rephaim that is used 28 times. The two are connected together, and we're going to go into that next week. We don't have time to do it. Our time is actually up. But I want to leave you with this because this will, this will get your attention and this will give you something. And you'll notice, by the way, I did put in here with these, with these words, I did put in the, the Strong's number. So if you use ESWORD, you can go look up these references and you can see every one of them because they're all there. And, and ESWORD makes it so easy. You don't even have to know Hebrew to use ESWORD. And that's really what makes it so much value. So Isaiah 26, verse 14. Now, it's not translated, so you can't see it. But let's begin reading at uh, verse uh, 13. Isaiah 26, 13. O Lord our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us. Other masters have had dominion over us. Who were they? But by thee only will we make mention of your name. They are dead. Now, this is a normal Hebrew word for dead. They shall not live. They are deceased. That word is not deceased. The Hebrew word there is Rapha. Raphaim. It's one of the names of the sons of God. Their offspring were called Nephilim and Rephaim. And also there was a particular branch you'll see in our notes, the Anakim of the sons of Anak. They were all these hybrid humanoids. Now why is that important? It says they are dead. These, these people, these lords that had dominion over the people of Israel, besides God, they were, they says they're dead. They're physically, physically dead. They're in the grave. They don't live. It says they are Rephaim. They shall not rise. Wait a minute, folks. How many humans, what percentage of the human population is going to be raised for the final judgment? Some of them? No, every human being. If you go, you can write this down, John 5, 25. It says, all over in the grave shall hear the voice of the Son of Man and be resurrected. Every human being is going to be resurrected to go to the great white throne. But these individuals are not going to be resurrected. I'm not making it up. You see that word deceased? I'll be glad to show you. I have a, in my Bible, in my, in my pocket, uh, on my phone, I have a Hebrew interlinear Old Testament. I'll show you the word if you want to see it. This is the word Rapha for Rapha. It's a singular Raphaim. It's one of the words, and you can see it if you peek ahead in my notes. You can see who they were. These were the sons of God. These were the offspring. They were giants. They were called by these names, and they are not going to be resurrected. That means that God does not count them to be human. So I call them hybrid humanoids, or hybrids. They are not, I mean, that may sound funny, but you've never heard this possibly, but this is what it says. It says they're deceased, they're Rephaim. Yes, Joe? 
Well, they have. They must have a soul and a spirit, but they're just not going to be resurrected. But they're, they're, and, and we do know that they're, they're, these individuals, the angels of sin, it says in Second Peter, it says that they're they're confined in a place called Tartarus. They're 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 stuck there because they, the angels that did it and the offspring that did it. If they're not going to be resurrected, then guess where they are not at. Well, I might as well. Okay, let me do this one more thing. Let's do one more thing. If you want to know where they are. Back, go back to Isaiah 14. Now, they're not going to be resurrected. And we know unsaved people today go to what we call the lowest sheol. It's where the fire burns. Because David said he, in Psalm 86, David said he was saved from the lowest sheol. And Deuteronomy 32 says that the lowest sheol is where there's fire burning. So the lowest sheol is where unsaved people go. But I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 14. Now, if you know Revelation, when Satan is bound at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, he is taken to a place called the bottomless pit which is really the abyss. The bottomless pit's kind of a bad translation. If a pit doesn't have a bottom, you just go right, you drop somebody in the top, and if there's no bottom, they'll just come all the way out and go out the other side, wherever the other side ends. No, it's called the abyss. Now, I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 9, and I, I'm going to have to leave you with this and bait you this. You can see this is, a, this is a terrific, this is unusual, because you probably don't, most men are not going to go here, because they just don't use the Hebrew. That, that frustrates me, because I've taught Hebrew. I know how practical it is. But in, in Isaiah 14, look at verse 9. It says, Sheol, it's translated hell in the King James, but the Hebrew, of course, is Sheol. Sheol from beneath is moved to meet you at your coming. Now, when, when, who is it going to be? Well, you look at verse 12 if you want to know who it is. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? So it's talking about Satan in the context. So it says, Sheol from beneath is moved to greet thee at your coming. It stirs up the dead from the grave. Even the chief ones of the earth is raised up. It stirs up the dead to greet thee. Guess what that word for dead is? It's not the normal Hebrew word for dead. It's Rapha. Raphaim. It stirs up the Raphaim for you. Oh. The, the, uh, the Raphaim, the, the, the offspring of the sons of God, are in a place where Satan's going to be confined. And it says, they're, they're stirred up to greet you at your coming. And verse 10, And they shall also speak and say unto you, Are you become weak like us? If you also become weak as well as and weak as well, and, and art thou become like unto us? You could just imagine Satan's going to be confined there. And all of these individuals who were his followers and the offspring of his followers, they're going to be there and say, Whoa, well, look who's come to town. Come on down. Come on down, Satan. Come on down, Lucy. Come on down and enjoy this. They're going to taunt him for a thousand years. Because he says, Are you also become weak as as well, and are thou become like unto us? They're not saying, this is not flattery, this is not casual conversation, this is belittling, this is deriding. So <laughs> Satan's going to have a thousand years of being taunted by these individuals who are confined there. They're not humans. They're not going to be resurrected. They don't go to where humans go. Now, is this possible? What does the scripture say? I'm not making any of this up. And I'll be glad to show you. If you want to see, I have a interlinear Hebrew on my cell phone. I can show you some of the words if you really want to see it. Anybody wants to see it, or else I can bring it next month when I bring, come back to the subject. I will bring some material that will show you the words where they're used, and uh, I can leave in the Hebrew text if you'd like to see it. And there's no question. I'm not making any of this up. I'm just a simple Bible teacher. I'm not even a scholar. I don't want to care what they think. I'm a simple Bible teacher that's just going to show you what does the Word of God say. If this is what it says, then you know what? I believe it. I believe it. Do you? 
If the Bible says so, I believe it. So, well, we're going to stop here. We're going to have to come back next month and we have more. We only have about a page and a half, but I'm going to add a whole bunch more to this because there's a lot more we can say. And uh, next month, we're going to find out where these, where these individuals were and some of the things it says in the Old Testament about them. They were a fascinating group of people. The offspring here, apparently, they were kings all over the earth. And they were probably just about everywhere. Now maybe you understand Easter Island. Maybe you understand Stonehenge, how those things were put up. Maybe you understand how the pyramids were built. Men, they're 12 foot tall. Stronger than about 100 of us. I think you have a pretty good idea how some of those wonders of the ancient world could have been made. These were the people that probably did it. Who were the sons of God in the Old Testament? Fallen spirit beings. Followers of Satan. Taking human flesh. Cohabitating with, with human women. And producing offspring that were not really even considered human. That's why at the flood only eight people came through the flood. Why only eight? Because they were the only ones that weren't contaminated. That's why. And that's why the flood came. Because the whole world just gave themselves over to these individuals. They just wanted what they could have. Well, who wouldn't want it? You get a, if you're a farmer and you have a 12-foot tall son-in-law, you've got farm equipment there. You put a plow on him, he'd be, he, you can't even get a yoke of oxen. Come close to him. You had farm equipment out of those guys. Yeah, you can understand. The same thing would happen today. Just imagine if someone, if that sort of thing could happen today and women and families could have children born that were huge children born that were great, big, powerful individuals. Would people today go for that? Like that. That's who they were. So we have a problem we don't have, folks. We don't have a problem in understanding who these individuals were. And for that reason, we don't really have a problem understanding the flood and a lot of other things too. Let's pray, shall we? Father, once again, we're thankful that we are not responsible to make up things. We are not obligated to come up with fanciful interpretations and, and read things into Scripture. We're simply, re we're simply required to read what Scripture says, to take it literally, and to present it to your people. And Father, today we know that this may seem radical and may seem extreme in the eye because it's not well taught. It's not been often taught. But yet, Father, it should be evaluated in light of the Scripture. May the Holy Spirit add his amen to this. And may this be something that is not going to stumble or offend any, any of our beloved folks here today or any that listen on the Internet, but simply will open our eyes to what Scripture has always said. And for once, we can see what Scripture said instead of what men wanted to say. And we're thankful for that now in our Savior's name. Amen.